Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-7, Babur and the Uzbeks. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Muhammad Zahiruddin Babur, the great-great-grandson of Timur, is born in Fergana in 1483. After his father's death, Babur becomes ruler of Fergana and desperately wants to expand his territory. Babur captures Samarkand, capital of the Timur dynasty, twice but loses it both times. After several ups and downs, Babur is now destitute with no home, no throne, and no lands. And with that, let's discuss Babur's invasion of Afghanistan. Babur and Kabul Things were not really looking good for Babur as he and his small group fled the Fergana Valley, heading south towards Afghanistan in the spring of 1504. At 23 years of age, Babur was a fugitive prince. The Uzbeks were in control of Samarkand and Fergana, and his followers had dwindled down to about 200 men. Everyone in his group traveled on foot. Though many of them were royalty, their clothes looked like they belonged to peasants. Babur's few soldiers were only armed with staves, which were little more than pointy sticks. What Babur did have an abundance of was charm and charisma. He used these tools and his royal pedigree to win allies and soldiers to his side. In this manner, he slowly grew his following as he traveled. His brother, Jahangir, was traveling with him and also had a small military contingent. We discussed Jahangir in the previous episode. This was the brother who took over Andijan when Babur got really sick and everyone thought he was going to die. But by now, the two brothers had made up. Jahangir only remained with Babur during the early part of his journey. Eventually, Jahangir left Babur to try his luck in Khorasan. In June 1504, Babur reached Kabul where Jahangir soon rejoined him. Evidently, whatever adventure Jahangir was looking for in Khorasan didn't work out. Kabul had once been ruled by one of Babur's uncles, but by this time, it was being ruled by a nun Timur named Mughan. Babur, together with his brother Jahangir, proceeded to attack Kabul. Jahangir took the right flank while Babur commanded the center. Eventually, the ruler of Kabul surrendered to Babur, who allowed him to flee with his family and retinue to Kandahar. Babur followed this victory up with the conquest of Ghazni, about 80 miles south of Kabul. Within a year, Babur had added two major cities and a large chunk of Afghanistan to his new territory. Babur actually wound up falling in love with Kabul. He just loved the city and would always have a strong attachment to it throughout his life. He even requested that he be buried in Kabul and that is where his tomb remains to this day. Babur described Kabul in great detail in his memoirs, the Babur Nama. Let's go through a few of them now. 
In this first excerpt, Babur talks about a mountain near Kabul called Shah of Kabul. Its walled town connects with one of these, rather a low one known as Shah of Kabul, because at one time a Hindu Shah of Kabul built a residence on its summit. Shah of Kabul begins at the Durin Narrows and ends at those of the Hayyakub. It may be four miles around. Its skirt is covered with gardens fertilized from a canal which was brought along the hill slope in the time of my paternal uncle. The water of this canal comes to an end in a retired corner, a quarter known as Kolkina, where much debauchery has gone on. Here's another excerpt where he talks about Kabul as a major trading center. Just as Arabs call every place outside of Arabia, Ajam, so Hindustanis call every place outside Hindustan, Khurasan. There are two trade marts on the land route between Hindustan and Khurasan. One in Kabul, the other is Kandahar. To Kabul, caravans come from Kashgar, Fergana, Turkestan, Samarkand, Bukhara, Bakh, Hisar, and Badakhshan. Kabul is an excellent trading center. If merchants went to Cathay, that is China, or Rum, that is Trebizond in Anatolia, they might make no higher profit. And here's another one where he talks about the different ethnic groups in Kabul. There are many differing tribes in the Kabul country. In its dales and plains are Turks and clansmen and Arabs. In its towns and many villages, Sarts. Out in the districts and also in villages are the Peshaj, Paraji, Tajik, Birki, and Afghan tribes. In the western mountains are the Hazara and Nikdiri tribes, some of whom speak the Mughali tongue. In the northeastern mountains are the places of the Kafirs, such as Kitur and Gibrik. To the south are the places of the Afghan tribes. After eight years of struggle and fighting, and warfare, and many ups and downs, Babur had finally found some peace and tranquility. He engaged in agriculture. He planted fruits, trees, and gardens. He wrote poetry. He also sponsored the arts, beginning a tradition that would continue with many of his descendants. Babur divided his newly conquered lands amongst the various Timur princes. He placed Jahangir as ruler of Ghazni. In fact, Kabul became a refuge of sorts for many of Timur's descendants. These were the princes fleeing the Uzbeks led by Babur's archenemy, Shaybani Khan. Don't worry, we'll get to him soon enough. Even though Babur enjoyed this peaceful period of time in his life, it wasn't long before his adventurous side got the best of him. He consulted with his advisors as to where he should go next, and they suggested that he attack India. In January 1505, barely four months after capturing Kabul, Babur led his army eastwards toward Hindustan, or India as we call it today. He crossed over the Khyber Pass, going through the rugged mountains of Afghanistan, then marched to the Indus River. Ultimately, Babur chose not to cross the river, instead turning south towards Kohat, Pakistan, about 85 miles west of the modern city of Islamabad. Babur's army raided Kohat several times, plundering the local Afghans at will. 
He then went on to attack the city of Hangu in northwestern Pakistan. This time, however, he faced fierce resistance before finally defeating the Afghans. With this victory, Babur proved he truly was descended from Timur and Genghis Khan with a terrible display of brutality. After defeating the Afghans at Hangu, he had them all beheaded. Then he built a tower of skulls from their heads. This was the first time that Babur mentioned such an act in his memoirs. And he doesn't give any explanation for this bizarre, brutal behavior. But rest assured, this was not his last time. From Hangu, Babur marched 40 miles south to Banu, where he again defeated the local Afghans. He again took more plunder and again built more towers of skulls. Finally, in March 1505, just after Ayrul Fitr, Babur headed back to Kabul following the Indus River to the Kohi Suleiman Mountains. The Kohi Suleiman Mountains is a mountain range in Khyber Pachunkhwa Province and northern Balochistan Province, both of which are in modern-day Pakistan. From Pakistan, the Kohi Suleiman Mountains go on into Afghanistan. As Babur and his army traveled through these mountains, they were attacked by local Afghan groups. To be fair, Babur did his fair share of attacking local Afghans as well. He finally made it back to Kabul in May 1505, where his mother passed away less than a month later. Shaybani Khan After a brief respite, Babur decided to invade Kandahar, about 280 miles southwest of Kabul. But then he got sick and Kabul got hit with an earthquake, so those plans were put on hold for a while. When he finally did set off for Kandahar, he got sidetracked when he decided to attack the city of Kolat instead. The city of Kolat, the one in Afghanistan, not the one in Pakistan, is about 70 miles north of Kandahar. Babur's invasion of Kolat did not go as well as his foray into Pakistan. The city's defenders were ready for him and Babur suffered heavy losses for very little gain. Eventually, Babur had to call it off and return to Kabul. After all, he'd only been in Kabul a little over a year and was still consolidating his rule. He could not afford to take such heavy losses on side quests like Kolat. Meanwhile, Babur's old nemesis, the Uzbek warlord Shaybani Khan, was driving the Timurids out of Central Asia. These were the various descendants of Timur, whose once great empire covered much of Central Asia in the Middle East. In late spring 1506, Shaybani Khan laid siege to Bakh, then sent an army to attack Badakhshan. Badakhshan is a region covering eastern Tajikistan and northern Afghanistan. However, Babur's brother, Nazir Mirza, defeated the Uzbek army attacking Badakhshan. With the Uzbek threat increasing, Babur tried to rally the other Timur princes to his side. He could see that Shaybani Khan was slowly purging Central Asia of the Timur lineage. He met with his cousins in October 1506 in the city of Herat in modern-day Afghanistan, and they worked on a plan to defeat Shaybani Khan. However, 
With winter approaching, the Uzbek forces had withdrawn and the Timurids shelved their plans until the next spring. Babur hung around Herat for a while but eventually returned to Kabul in December 1506. The following year, in the spring of 1507, Shaybani Khan launched a major assault on Khorasan, that is Central Asia. During this campaign, he also captured Herat, mistreated its citizens, and forced the wife of its dead Timurid ruler to marry him. This was particularly vile from a Muslim perspective because her iddah was not completed yet. The iddah, which generally lasts about three months, is the waiting period before a divorced or widowed woman can remarry. While Shaybani Khan was taking Herat, Babur was attacking Kandahar, finally capturing the city in 1508. He then appointed his brother, Nasir Mirza, his deputy in Kandahar, and then he returned to Kabul. Once back in Kabul, Babur married his uncle Ahmed Mirza's daughter, whose name was Masuma Sultan Begum. Soon after that, Babur received the news that Shaybani Khan was besieging Kandahar. The city fell before Kabul could respond, and his lieutenants, including his brother Nasir Mirza, fled to Kabul. With this victory, Shaybani Khan had removed all of the Timurid princes from Central Asia except for Babur, and Shaybani Khan desperately wanted to get rid of him as well. Babur and Shaybani Khan were on a collision course. Babur wanted to destroy Shaybani Khan just as much as Shaybani Khan wanted to destroy him. As the last major Timurid ruler, Babur, at only 25 years of age, declared himself Padishah, which means emperor. Before this, Babur and the other Timurid rulers simply used the title Mirza, which means prince. Samarkand again. Around the same time, in March 1508, Babur's first son, Humayun, was born in Kabul. As the new Padishah, Babur decided to take another shot at Samarkand. As we discussed in the previous episode, Babur had captured and lost Samarkand twice already. Despite his recent successes, however, he knew he couldn't take Samarkand on his own. The Uzbeks and Shaybani Khan were just too strong. But the Uzbeks were also at war with the Safavids of Persia. The Safavids were a Shiite Persian dynasty that ruled over much of Persia at this time. This war between the Uzbeks and the Safavids had become personal as Shaybani Khan had insulted the Safavid ruler, Shah Ismail I, by sending him a begging bowl. In 1510, Shaybani Khan was ambushed by the Persians and killed at the Battle of Merv. Then, Shah Ismail had Shaybani Khan's body dismembered and sent to various parts of his empire. Finally, it's not over yet. Finally, Shaybani Khan's skull was set in gold and turned into a drinking goblet. As a gesture of kindness, Shah Ismail even returned Babur's sister to him. 
As discussed in the previous episode, Shaybani Khan had forcibly married her after he captured Samarkand from Babur back in 1501. Babur used this kindness from the Safavid emperor as an opening to form an alliance. Perhaps, with their help, he could get Samarkand back. Shah Ismail agreed to help but wanted Babur to become a Shiite in return. If Babur was not willing to do that, he at least had to wear a Shiite-style turban and robes. Additionally, Babur also had to deliver the Friday khutbah and strike coins in the name of the Shah. Reading the khutbah and striking coins in the leader's name were gestures of submission in the Muslim world back in those days. In some respects, one could argue that Shah Ismail was really trying to turn Babur into a vassal of the Safavid Empire. But Babur really wanted Samarkand. So he agreed to these terms and, with the help of the Safavids, he wound up capturing Samarkand for a third time in 1513. Along with Samarkand, Babur also captured Bukhara. But this did not last very long. Both of these cities were predominantly Sunni Muslim. The citizens of these cities were shocked and upset to see Babur with a Shiite turban on his head, wearing Shiite robes, and praising a Shiite emperor during Friday worship. The Uzbeks, whom Babur had displaced, used this to turn the people against him. Within a year, the Uzbeks had driven Babur out of Samarkand yet again, making it the third time he'd lost the city. Babur returned to Kabul in 1514, effectively ending his alliance with the Safavids. Shah Ismail had no use for Babur if he wasn't ruling Samarkand, and Babur didn't really like depending on the Shah's support. Even though he was only able to capture Samarkand with the Shah's army, this same dependency had ultimately cost Babur the city anyway. The Ottoman Empire steps in. It wasn't long after this failure that the Ottoman Emperor, Selim I, reached out to Babur, hoping to convince him to return to the Sunni fold. Sultan Selim considered himself the supreme leader of all Sunni Muslims, and he did not like the idea of a Timurid prince becoming a Shiite. But the Ottomans needn't have worried because Babur's conversion was purely opportunistic and only to get Safavid support for Samarkand. Once that was no longer a factor, Babur returned to Sunni Islam. Before all this business with the Safavids and Samarkand, the relationship between the Ottomans and Babur had been a little rocky. You see, the Safavids and the Ottomans were rivals similar to how Saudi Arabia and Iran are rivals today. First of all, they shared a border which automatically put them at odds with each other. They also represented two different Islamic ideologies. The Ottomans were Sunni, while the Safavids were Shiite. And neither empire recognized the legitimacy of the other. 
And as we mentioned earlier, the Uzbeks, led by Shaybani Khan, had been at war with the Safavids. Hence, using the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the Ottomans provided weapons to the Uzbeks in their fight against the Safavids. However, the Timurids and the Uzbeks were also at war. This indirectly put Babur and the Ottomans on opposite sides, even though they were both Sunnis. But with Shaybani Khan gone, the Ottomans now saw an opportunity to mend things with Babur. Sultan Selim began sending several Ottoman soldiers and specialists to assist Babur. This included some very accomplished and highly regarded military figures. Among these was Ustad Ali Kuli, who was an excellent artilleryman. Also included was Mustafa Rumi, an Ottoman general who was also an expert with matchlock infantry. Matchlock was an early type of firearm that was more like a small handheld cannon. When the trigger was pulled, it dipped a lit fuse into priming powder on top of the gun. The priming powder ignited the main charge, which then shot a steel ball through the gun's barrel. These two Ottoman warriors, Ustad Ali Kuli and Mustafa Rumi, would be pivotal to Babur's campaign in India. So far, we have mentioned two of the three so-called gunpowder empires of the Muslim world. We discussed the Ottoman Empire and we have discussed the Safavid Empire. And now we are about to go into the story of the third gunpowder empire, the Mughal Empire. In the next episode, we will discuss Babur's initial invasion into India. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, Simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Siroj for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.
Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2 7. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf dismisses Yazid ibn Muhalab as governor of Khurasan. And Musa ibn Abdullah ibn Khazim continues his rebellion against the Umayyads from his home base in Tiramis. All right, now with that, we will take a break from the eastern provinces of the Umayyad Caliphate, and we will begin to discuss North Africa this episode. Now, there is a lot of difficulty in researching the Muslim conquest of North Africa, The main problem is that there aren't very many good records. There were three groups of people fighting over this land during this period of time. The Arabs, the Byzantines, or the Romans, or the Greeks, they can be interchangeable at times, and the local Berbers. Unfortunately, there aren't that many existing records from any of these three groups regarding the Muslim conquest of North Africa. And many of the events that have been recorded, many of them are really legends. And so what we have from these legends is information that has to be taken with a grain of salt. Speaking of grains of salt, there is a French collection of the history of this era, but it is very, very biased against Muslims, against Islam, and against Arabs. This French uh record is French essay or book or whatever was written over a hundred years ago. That's when it was okay to be racist back then. And it's not really accepted or nor considered reliable by modern historians. So I won't really reference it. As far as the Muslim record is concerned, there is very little recorded about the conquest of North Africa in Tadikhatabri. There are a few other Muslim collections, Muslim histories written about this era. But again, many of them are wrapped in, I don't want to say legend, but some of it is hard to verify. It's not as concise, as verifiable as um, Atabadi's work based on the eastern provinces. So it it really just isn't that reliable, though there is some benefit to it. Another reason why there is some difficulty in researching this era is that there was a lot of turmoil, which might also be the reason why there are so few records of this era coming from the era itself, coming from the region itself, North Africa itself. You see, the Muslims or the Arabs, if you want to be more specific, did not steamroll across North Africa like they did in Syria and Persia during the times of the early um, Khulafa Rashidun. They didn't just steamroll over the Byzantines and the Berbers. It took some time. As we mentioned, there were three major groups, the Berbers, the Byzantines, and the Arabs. And as we mentioned in, I believe, season three of the Islamic History podcast, Berbers prefer the local, the, um, their original name, or I guess their indigenous name of Amazik. We'll discuss that a little bit in a few minutes, but... Don't get too side railed in that. But the Berbers, the Byzantines, and the Arabs were the three major groups. And 
the Arabs just didn't steamroll over them like they did in Persia. One group would win, they'd be quickly pushed out by the other group, then another group would come and push them out, and it was a lot of back and forth before the Umayyad Caliphate finally was able to bring some stability and actually hold this region down, North Africa down for good. This is all to say that this episode will not be as detailed as usual. In fact, my discussion of the conquest of North Africa is not going to be as detailed as our discussion of the events in Persia and Afghanistan and Iraq. It's just not going to be that detailed because I don't have the detail right now. And if I were to do the research, I could probably get more detail for you, but it would take a long time. And I'm trying to do this on a week by week basis. So I had to make the, de- make the decision to get what I could and at least give you a broad outline so you understand what's going on in North Africa and how it came under Muslim control in general and Umayyad control uh, specifically.